Welcome to Ephesians chapter 6 on the listener's commentary on the New Testament. In this session, we're going to be looking at the first nine verses of Ephesians 6, Ephesians 6, 1 through 9. And it's really important as we begin just to keep in mind the context that this continues the discussion about the Christian household that was begun in the last chapter. In chapter 5, 22 through 33, Paul talks about husbands and wives. And even that flows out of what he said in 521 about submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And so this whole household section began there in chapter 5, verse 21, with that idea that uh, in the Christian family, there's this mutuality, this deference, this disposition to lay down our life for each other. And that's going to play out different ways depending on the nature of the relationships and on the responsibilities within those relationships. And so we're going to have to figure that out. Paul takes that principle and applies it specifically to the Christian household. And so we looked at husbands and wives in 522 through 23, how the wife arranges herself under her husband's leadership, and the husband lays down his life for the sake of his wife, just like Christ did for the sake of the church. Now here we're going to take that same idea, and we're going to apply it to the two more main relationships within the ancient household, fathers and children slaves and masters. And so that's the relationships we're going to look at here in this section. And so the first bit will be uh, addressing children and fathers, and then the second bit will be addressing slaves and masters. And don't forget how countercultural these instructions are, as we noted in the last session, specifically uh, in two ways. One, in that they give the dignity of choice and responsibility to the children and to the slaves, right? Like, that didn't happen in the ancient world. They weren't treated with that much dignity, that much responsibility, that much, they weren't treated as if you know they had that much value or worth. But the New Testament does because Jesus and the apostles valued women, valued children, valued slaves as human beings made in the image of God. So that's countercultural. And they're also countercultural in that they call the head of the household to act in a self-sacrificial, self-giving, considerate, and charitable manner. That stands out in the ancient world as incredibly countercultural. All right, so don't forget that as we work through these two parts and look at what, what Paul says to him. First, children and fathers. This is what he says. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Uh, obedience to parents was the cultural no norm in both Jewish and Greco-Roman society in Paul's day. They had a much higher view of parents and parental authority than Western cultures do in our time and our place in history. Their, their view was much more like traditional cultures are today, cultures in uh, the Middle East today, for example, in Pakistan and some of those places where those traditional cultures have a much higher view of parents and parental authority than, say, we do here in the United States of America. That was the way it was in the ancient world. Uh, they did leave room for exceptions, but those cases were unusual, and they required much kind of thought to figure out where those exceptions lied and what that might mean. When was it appropriate for children not to obey uh, parents and all of that? So they allowed for some of those exceptions. They just were very unusual, required much discernment, much thought. Here, Paul emphasizes that this obedience to parents isn't just a cultural thing. It isn't uh, something that is purely tied up with Jewish culture, Greco-Roman culture, or whatever culture we're living in, that it actually ought to be done because of the Lord. Obey your parents, he says, in the Lord. 
That doesn't mean parents who are in the Lord. You don't have to obey non-Christian parents. It means because you're in the Lord, because this is what the Lord wants you to do. This is part of your discipleship to Jesus. This is part of following of Jesus. You obey your parents in the Lord. He says, this is right. It's right, yes, within society, but even more, it's right in Jesus. It's right before God. It's right in the way God really designed the universe to work, that there are just inherent structures within the way God designed the universe that are just as real as physical laws, all right? Like gravity. You don't see gravity, but if you try to, you know, walk off a tall building, you're going to experience gravity. It's just woven into the fabric of the universe. Well, same is true with certain uh, societal or moral laws. They're just woven into the fabric of the universe. One of them is children obey your parents for this is right. Paul supports this point with a quote from the Old Testament from one of the Ten Commandments. This is what it says. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 2 reads, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And this is a Quote of the fifth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. So you can read it there and you can see what he's getting at. This command, honor your father and mother, includes a promise. And the promise is that it may go well with you. The idea is that, generally speaking, life goes better for children who honor and obey their parents. This doesn't mean all parents, because some parents are problematic, right? This doesn't mean everything that parents says is correct. Even in their culture, they recognize that. And they even allowed, in rare cases, for going against parents in very unusual circumstances. But overall, this is true, and thus the promise that kids, children who obey and honor their parents, life goes better for them. The sphere of blessing and safety is within the circle of obedience. So learning to respect and obey authority is a key for life going well, and that begins at home. That's really the point of this. And so children do this. This is what God taught way back in the day. This is true. This is right. It's true throughout time and history. And so it's appropriate. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. Now, in verse 4, he turns in to address the fathers. And this is what he says to them. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Notice this is addressed specifically to fathers, which would be the same person as the husband in the preceding paragraph, right? So he's He's getting instruction again, and we noted that at the beginning of our last session, that the head of the household, he gets the most instruction here. He gets hit three times as a husband, father, and a slave master. He gets hit multiple times. And so it's him again, same person. The reason it's addressed to fathers is because in the ancient world, he was largely responsible for the discipline of the children. He was responsible for what went on in the home with regard to the children. The mother obviously carried a lot of that out. Uh, and they had servants, some of them that carried a lot of that out, but he was ultimately the one in charge. That's why it's addressed to him. And so he set the direction, the tone for the home. What does the Apostle Paul call him to do? Well, here's what it calls him to do. He says, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In other words, he's responsible to use his position of authority as a father for the well-being of his children. He says, don't provoke your children to anger. Uh, really, this verb is this, the same root word as the noun in 426 about 
uh, being angry and letting the sun go down on your anger. And the concern uh, is similar in both, that smoldering resentment and anger leads to really life not going well. And 426, it gives the devil an opportunity here. It just, it just makes life in the home hard. So don't treat your kids. Don't carry out your, uh, your fatherhood and your authority as a father in a way that's going to lead to just anger and smoldering resentment. You know, that don't be unreasonable and heavy handed and harsh with your kids. That's the, that's what he's saying. Don't do that. That's how you're going to provoke your children to anger. That's how you're going to stir up smoldering resentment and anger. In other words, Paul is calling on Christian fathers to not misuse their position and their authority by treating their children in harsh, unfair ways that lead to resentment. Don't do that. Instead, he says, bring them up. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up includes taking care of them. It actually, that word included in the ancient world, showing affection. It includes teaching and training and leading them. So rather than just controlling, being heavy-handed, trying to make them do what you want, you bring them up, you instruct them, you show them, you show affection for them, you care for them, you teach them. So he says to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word discipline has the idea of teaching and training. and even correction, right? Like even correction is going to have a training goal, a teaching goal. You're wanting to help them learn. You're not just trying to, you know, make them not be a nuisance. You're not trying to get them out of your hair. You're not just trying to control them so you don't look bad. You're teaching them. You're training them. Even when you have to correct them, which if we teach and train them well, is going to be less and less needed. And so we, we have this training goal in mind. And then instruction has more the idea of admonition, of challenging, of warning, of helping them to avoid wrong paths by pointing out the dangers of the wrong paths. Think, for example, of the book of Proverbs, which is couched as a father's advice to his son. And you can see the admonitions in there. Uh, you know, watch out for, you know, watch out for the seductress. Uh, don't do that. That Watch out, you know, beware of. That's the idea of this uh, instruction. So discipline has more the idea of teaching, training, and even correction towards showing them the right way and the training goal. Instruction here has more the idea of challenging and admonishing and warning and helping them see the dangers of difficult things so they can avoid those paths. And all of this has Jesus as its source and basis there to, to really pass on the wisdom and way of Jesus to their kids, bring them up in the admonition and instruction of the Lord, the training, teaching, and and, and admonition of the Lord. So Jesus' wisdom, Jesus' way, is ultimately the, the source and the basis of everything that they're supposed to do. Real quick, before we move to slaves and masters, just a couple implications from this little section about uh, kids and fatherhood. Uh, first off, parental authority is right. Parental is authority is right. It's not right because you're older. It's not right because you're bigger. It's not right just because you're smarter or anything like that. It's just right because it's the way God designed the universe to work. So as parents, we don't need to be embarrassed by or feel sheepish about using our authority. Parenting authority is right. Again, we need to under authority, understand authority in the way Jesus taught about it. Authority is always used in the best interest of the other person. It's serving. It's laying down our life. That's just the way uh, we need to always understand authority in the Christian context because it's what Jesus meant by authority. So it's what the New Testament means by authority. So, But nevertheless, that authority is right. Parents are in charge. 
They're in charge for the good of their kids. They're in charge for the well-being of their kids. They're in charge to help them learn the way they should go. They're help, help them learn the way of Jesus. And so there's always that training, teaching, discipleship, uh, helping them grow as human beings. So parents, your authority is right. You don't have to feel ashamed of that. You don't even have to earn it. You just are. You just are. If you act with the peace-filled, calm confidence of the person who's in charge, man, that just makes things go better in your home. The, the second implication here is that Christian parenting takes intentionality. It doesn't happen on accident, right? Like you don't, you don't teach and train them uh, and lead them in the way of the Lord by just drifting. You're going to have to put some effort into this. You're going to have to think this thing through. You're going to have to work hard at this. You're going to have to uh, be intentional about this. You're going to have to make sure you're learning and growing in your faith. You're learning the way of Jesus too, so you can pass it on to them. You're going to have to look for intentional structured moments of education and training and teaching, as well as teachable moments that show up. It's going to take some intentionality. It's not just going to be whimsical and ad hoc and haphazard and carefree. So Christian parenting takes intentionality in order to bring them up in the uh, discipline and instruction of the Lord. All right, now with that, let's transition to part two, slaves and masters. And that's the second half of this. Paul gives instructions to slaves and masters. Why does Paul bring this up? Because slaves were part of the household. That was one of the dominant ways slavery showed up, which is household slaves. It wasn't the only way, but it was one of the dominant ways slaves showed up in the ancient world as household servants, household slaves. And Paul has to bring it up because slaves were everywhere. It wasn't like a, a small deal. Slaves were everywhere in the Greco-Roman Empire. Roughly 20 to 25% of the population of the empire at any given time were slaves. And so that's a massive thing. And, and in the Christian experience, then, you're going to encounter a world where much of what happens in that world happens because of the energy and effort of slaves. And so we're going to have to figure out what, is, what does that mean for the church? What does that mean for God's people? Add to that the fact there was plenty of kind of traditional standard teaching of the day about slaves in the household. And so Paul just couldn't leave it out. He needed to provide a Jesus-centered perspective that contrasted with the traditional teaching of his culture and the traditional way slaves were viewed and the slaves were handled and the slaves were approached. And so he had to offer a Jesus-centered perspective. Well, that raises a whole other question then. Well, why doesn't Paul call for the release of slaves? Why doesn't the New Testament anywhere call for the release of all slaves? And that's a big question that we just don't have time to give a full answer to on this teaching. So let me just offer a couple considerations before we jump into what Paul does say to slaves and masters here. First, I would say this, that uh, just calling for the release of all slaves would have really been completely ineffective, and frankly, it would have been just unwise. I, I know we may not fully get that, but it just would have been in his cultural context. L let me try to illustrate it this way. At this point in time, can you imagine a world without computers. How would you uh, think about and respond to a leader of a new group, new organization, new religious group, whatever it is, that called for the elimination of all computers today? Computers are evil. We need to get rid of computers. They're dehumanizing to people. Eliminate them all. How would you respond to a leader of a brand new religious group that you looked on with suspicion and distrust anyhow if they called for the elimination of all computers? Maybe that's not a perfect example, but that's roughly how most of society would have looked at Paul and the Christians had he called for that. It would have gotten him nowhere. 
the world couldn't operate without slavery and Paul's day, just like the world today it can't operate without computers. Um, not only that, it would have hindered the advance of Jesus' kingdom, which was ultimately the real solution to slavery, injustice, and vice. Uh, people would have just like written them off. Those guys are idiots. They're fools. And so it just would have been totally ineffective and totally unwise. And Paul is wiser than us. Paul is wiser than that. Um, we tend to think that a policy change or an administrative change is going to solve the problem. Whereas Paul knew that heart change, while slower, was far more powerful and would bring real change. Now, Paul wasn't opposed to like heart, you know, or policy change or status change, if possible. You see that in Corinthians when he tells slaves, look, hey, if you can get your freedom, get your freedom. Right? That, that's great. If you can get your freedom, do it. You don't have to stay where you're at. So Paul, Paul was willing to encourage slaves if that's possible. And in their culture, there were ways to do about that. You could earn some money, buy your own freedom or some of that. So there were ways to acquire freedom because slavery was a different thing in the Greco-Roman experience than it was, say, in the American experience of slavery, the modern um, slave trade. Their version of slavery was different. It was an equal opportunity affair. It wasn't race-based. There was a lot of reasons for it. So it was possible to get slaves, uh, to get your freedom as a slave. And Paul says, if you can do that, great. Um, but Paul also knew that ultimately what would really bring the real change was going to be the transformation of people. And as people were transformed, society would be transformed. And thus, the way slaves and masters relate to one another is what would bring real change. Change the way they relate to one another, and you're going to affect real, lasting, deep change. And guess what? That's exactly what happened in Paul's world. Uh, within several hundred years of Paul writing his letters, um, there was a policy change that was really lived out because the heart had changed. So many people had become Christians, and Christian, Christianity permeated the uh, Roman Empire so fully that then when a policy change did come into effect, it, it made sense. And people actually lived it out because the way they were relating to one another had been significantly changed by the gospel. So the real problem if you want to know what I think, isn't that Paul didn't call for the end of slavery, but that God's people, us, haven't done so good at living out his instructions, which would have effectively brought an end to slavery and injustice of all kinds. All right, now there's much more that could be said about that. Uh, that's a really big topic, but hopefully that at least provides a little bit of a framework for understanding what's going on here. So with that, let's turn and look at the details of what Paul said. And remember, he's giving these details because there was so much common traditional teaching about masters and how they were supposed to treat slaves and who slaves were and yada, 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 that Paul has to provide a Jesus-centered response to that, which he does. Not only that, Ephesians is written at the same time, it seems, as Colossians and Philemon, both of which have to do with slaves because Philemon and Onesimus is the a specific issue between a slave master and a slave owner. Not only that, Philemon seems to be the household owner where the church in Colossae meets. And so there's a, this whole issue of slavery and masters has come up precipitated by what happened between Philemon and Onesimus. You can check out that commentary and the listener's commentary if you want to know more about that as well. All right, let's jump into the details here in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. This is what Paul says. He says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Notice that. Um, 
that they're not your ultimate master. You're, they're not your real and final master. They're just your master according to the flesh. So be obedient to them with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. So Paul gives these instructions, and it really sets up what he's going to say to masters here in just a second. We'll come to that in a second. But he, he instructs them essentially to be good slaves. Work hard, right? Like don't do it as eye service, like meaning when someone's just watching you. Don't just do your best because there's a, you know, a supervisor, a a manager that's watching the slaves and he's in charge of you and he's going to, you know, he's going to punish you if you don't do good, right? So don't do it just by way of eye services, men pleasers, but you carry out your work as slaves of Christ. You do the will of God from the heart. Notice that. Then doing your work, doing it to the best of your ability, that's doing the will of God. So do that from the heart. Do it with good will from the heart, he says. With good will, render service as to the Lord. Notice how many times he says this. Like, you, you do it um, as to Christ. You do it as slaves of Christ. You do it as to the Lord. Uh, you do it uh, as one who knows he's going to be repaid from the Lord, right? Like, this whole idea that your relationship to Jesus, he says, is, should gr really ground and direct the way you carry out your um, your work as a slave. He also says here, do it with fear and trembling. I just want to point that out because we need to be clear about that. That uh, most likely does not refer to being afraid of physical punishment, although physical punishment was a real thing. That's just not the way Paul uses the phrase fear and trembling in his letters. In Paul's letters, it refers to the disposition of uh, one sort of in a subordinate position, and it really just describes the attitude of respect and readiness to do what needs to be done, to do what's right. And in Paul's letters, like virtually almost all the time in Paul's letters, it always refers to our relationship to God. That we, for example, in Philippians 2, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul tells them there in Philippians 2. And so that's probably actually what he has in mind here, that when he says with fear and trembling, you do this before God, as a servant of God, ultimately, a slave of God, out of great honor and respect for God, and hence the reason for, as to Christ, as to the Lord, as to one who's going to be repaid by the Lord. You do this before him with great honor and respect to, to, to before God. You just do your work to the best of your ability. All right, that seems to be what he has in mind. So they are to carry out the service to their earthly master as though they were serving Jesus, their true master. Then Paul turns and talks to masters and says this in verse 9. And masters, this is what he says, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. This is radical. This is incredibly countercultural. This is unthinkable in the other household instructions that we know of from the first century. He says, masters, do the same things for them. Do the same thing to them. This is that spirit of mutuality. This is that submit to one another in the fear of Christ from 521. Masters, do the same thing to them. I mean, you don't find that anywhere in the ancient world. That's how countercultural this is. Just think about that. Masters, 
you you do this as to Christ. You lead your slaves and care for your slaves and and uh, you know really command your slaves, if you will, because you're an authority. You do it in the same sort of way. You do the same thing for them, knowing that each each thing, each good thing someone does, he's going to receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Like you have the same spirit. Don't just you know, care for them with eye service or any of that, right? Like you do it with fear and trembling before God. Why? Because you have a master in heaven as well, just like they do. Specifically, he even says, give up threatening. Notice that, give up threatening. Like the threat of violence was the primary means of slave control in the ancient world. And really probably today, right? And Paul tells masters to get rid of that. That's not how we treat people in the kingdom of God. That's not our way. We don't threaten people. We don't control people using the threat of violence and the threat of punishment. So get rid of that. Be done with that, he says. Don't do that. That's not how we operate. So you do the same things for them. You give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. You're not ultimately in charge. They have the same master as you. Um, and he's in charge, and he doesn't show partiality. He's not going to treat you especially because you happen to be a landowner with wealth, and he's not going to treat the slave differently because he happens to have a lower social status. No, he's actually going to uh, repay people appropriately according to what they deserve. Like We will each receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free, Paul had said in verse 8, and so he's not going to show partiality. And so be aware, be mindful, carry out your slave masterhood, knowing that you have an ultimate master and he values your slave as a human being. He loves him. He created him. He died for him. He made him. So you figure out what it looks like then to do the same things for them in view of that. And what stands out to me here is just the surprising and incredible mutuality of these instructions. The Lord's going to pay back each person for the things they've done. It doesn't matter whether you're slave or free. Masters, you do the same thing for slaves as you expect your slaves to do for you. Like act with goodwill. Act as a servant of Christ. Do God's will from the heart for them. Treat them the way you would expect to be treated. Serve them on Christ's behalf. Think about that. Masters, remember that you have a master in heaven. He's going to hold you accountable to all of this. That mutuality is shocking and surprising in the ancient world. And that would revolutionize these relationships. It did revolutionize these relationships throughout the ancient world. Shocking and phenomenal. Now, as we wrap up this section on slaves and masters, just real briefly, how do we apply this? Obviously, for the most part, most of us aren't slave owners. Most of us, you know, don't... Uh, aren't slaves, don't have slaves. So what do we do with it? Um, the typical way this gets applied, at least in my cultural context here in America, is, you know, employer-employee, right? That's. But really, it pertains to anything where there's like some sort of uh, boss, i.e. master, and some sort of uh, employee or servant. Yeah, if it's employee, em employer, it's not a one-to-one -one parallel. You're not you're not a slave, right? Like you have more freedom than the slaves did in the ancient world, right? So there are certainly differences. It's not exactly the same thing. We have to keep those differences in mind if we're going to apply this fairly. It's not one-to-one, -one, right? Like it's not the exact same thing. You could get a different job. They didn't have that opportunity, although they did have the opportunity at times to buy their own freedom. And so, but it's not one-to-one. -one. So keep that in mind as you seek to apply it, that it's not exactly the same thing. Nevertheless, this does teach us some things about that, about 
the way an employee or somebody who's in that subordinate position of working for somebody else ought to do their work. The spirit they ought to do it with. The way they ought to do it. Not only that, that they ought to do it ultimately as if Jesus were their boss. So how would you carry out your work? Whatever that work is, if Jesus were your boss. What if you don't have a boss? Say you're a, a work-at-home, stay-at-home mom and you don't have a boss. Well, still, now even more so, Jesus is your boss. So how are you going to do your work as if he's the boss? How can you honor him in your work? So it tells us a lot about how we ought to do our work and how we ought to relate to those who are in charge and supervise our work and those who are in charge. If you're a manager, a supervisor, a company owner, a CEO, CEO or whatever it is, and you're in charge, this says to you, do the same things. How do you want your employees, those under your charge, to act? Well, you do the same things for them. You treat them the same way, with the same respect, with the same honor, with the same consideration. Don't threaten, right? Give up threatening, right? Give up you know, punishment and figure out how to lead and, and shepherd them in a way that would honor Jesus. That's really ultimately how we need to think through and think about this text and what this text tells us today in our context.